you're listening to the City Lights Podcast, where we are equipping you to exalt Jesus and extend the kingdom of heaven right where you are. Thanks for joining us. We're in Ephesians 5 and continuing our series of inheritance. Stephen finally gave me a word that I was looking for, and in pastor world and preacher world, words are important, and they're really good, and they serve us well. The word that I heard him say last week was this word, life in Jesus, outside of life with God or inside of life with God. He was talking about Gentiles and Jews. Life with Jesus um, is is the best inheritance that we have. One of the things that you'll hear Jesus say over and over again is that I'm going to give you the ability to inherit eternal life. But in other passages, he would also not say inherit eternal life. He would say inherit abundant life, the full life, the real life, the awake life, the life on purpose, the life the way it was meant to be lived, life that's not just asleep and asleep at the wheel and kind of dazed and confused, moving way through the, through the motions of life, but actually living life in its essence, in its core. That is what I've seen time and time again in the book of Ephesians. Because inheritance in the book of Ephesians is not, not about stuff, really. It's not about money. It's not about the bank account. It's not about commodities, the way that we think of inherit. Inherit in the, the kingdom sense is about relationship and responsibility. It's about identity and it's about obedience. It's all the kinds of stuff that millionaires would pay millions for. And so I like that word, life, like the full life. That's, I think, what we're after this morning is, is seeing that Jesus has come not just to save us from death, but to give us life and life abundant. And, uh, and so we are in the beginning of Ephesians 5, as Stephen set up, Ephesians 4, 4 and beyond is this, this place where we're learning not just why we have life and whom we have life in, but how to walk out abundant life right now in 2018. And, uh, and one of the words that caught my, my eye today, specifically for this time together, is the word imitate, that we are imitators of the life in God that we've inherited. When I was a kid, I didn't go to church on Sundays. Uh, I would wake up in the morning and actually do my homework, not because I was a bright student, but because I wanted to get my homework out of the way so I could watch, watch the Bulls play in the afternoon, the Chicago Bulls in the 90s. Amen? Y'all, hear, y'all with me on this? The Chicago Bulls were not just uh, a team. They were a phenomenon. They were, um, they were a movement. I mean, they were just the 96 Bulls, 72 and 10 wins. I mean, I could just remember turning on the TV. I had a TV that looked like a microwave. You would press like two, three, enter. That was like NBC. And I remember the... And that's a time machine for me. I don't know about you, but if you hear those, those notes, you know excellence is about to happen. I mean, Jordan is about to just post up on John Starks in, in less than five minutes. You're just so excited. And, uh, and I remember when, when Marv Albert and, and Ramad Rashad, and they would get through the kind of initial announcements, and MJ would be there with kind of like his warm-up bull suit doing layups and chewing his gum and just taking it real cool and real easy. I mean, from that moment on, for about three hours it takes to watch an NBA game, my eyes were glued to the screen. And they weren't just glued to anything and everything. My eyes were glued to the greatest thing, the best thing, the thing that's going to be on the screen right behind me. I was glued to the GOAT. My eyes were staring at the, good, the great one, the greatest of all time, not just any basketball player. I mean, the icon living, the Michael Jordan, his airness himself, Michael Jeffrey Jordan. He wasn't just a basketball player. He was an icon. He was, he was a picture of excellence. And uh, they even wrote a song about him. You guys know the Michael Jordan song? Sometimes I dream that he is me, like Mike. I want to be like Mike. I want to be, I want to be. I mean, that song like took over not just my heart, but America's heart. I would stare at him, the way he would chew his gum. I mean, the way he would tie his shoes, the way he would just chew, the way that his bald head would just glisten in sweat. He would backwards jog down the court after he hit his first shot, talking about, y'all know I'm getting ready today. There's 37 more of those coming from him. He wouldn't high-five people. He would, he would fist bump people. 
He'd chew his gum and, and swagger around the court. I mean, I, I, I would watch him run. He wouldn't even have the ball. I'd be staring at him. I would watch him run. And it wouldn't just stop at staring at him. I would go outside and I would imitate the moves. Like, you understand, like, when I played Catholic school basketball, bitty boys basketball, like, I didn't just want to score 37 points, although I never made anywhere close. I didn't just want to score 37 points. I wanted to score 37 points the way that Mike scored 37 points. I want to have that back to the basket, y'all know. He'd have that post. Wah, wah. Boom. He'd turn around, and he had this leg kick. He had this space making before Dirk ever did it, before Kobe ever did it. He just, bam, just put people to sleep right there. I mean, at 36 years old, I mean, he was, he, was, he was just the goat. The way, I remember one time that he got tube socks for his Air Jordan 12s, like everybody would wear the ankle socks, and, and he was known to kind of change the game. He was the first person to do the shoe thing, and the first person to do the bald head, and the first person to do the longer shorts, and he had these tube socks. And so I went and got the tube socks because I wanted to be like Mike. I, I, I got the armband, the thicker one that went on your elbow because I wanted to be just like Mike. I even tucked in my shirt, even when it wasn't cool to tuck in your shirt, because when Mike practiced, he'd always have his shirt tucked in. And if it's Mike or if it's Tiger or if it's Michael Jackson or if it's Jimi Hendrix or if it's the Beatles or whoever it is, it's, it's like we have, we're hardwired to want to imitate the things that we admire. We're hardwired to not just want to see things but to be like people. When, when, when we notice a certain voice inflection or a mannerism that somebody that we admire do does, it's hard not to kind of copy it, to emulate it, to imitate it. I, I don't know if you've ever been to another country before, but you'll go to that country and you'll listen to that Irish accent. You're listening to like a Chinese accent and you'll come home and, and it's like, you, you, it's hard to not imitate it because it's like, you know, it's like it's what you see is what you, you become and what you're beholding is what you're becoming. What you're admiring is what you're imitating. We're hardwired to copy and it's because it's ingrained in the very DNA of who we, who we are and who we're supposed to be. We don't, we don't learn to walk by reading a book. Maybe Oliver learns to walk because he's watching his older brothers and sisters do it and he doesn't want to get left behind. And so it's not about reading and learning how to do something. It's watching and copying how to do something. You don't learn how to drive a car from, from reading a book. You, you learn how to drive a car from watching somebody. You don't actually buy you know, clothes off of stores just because there's pictures of the t-shirt. Typically, we buy the clothes off the store because we see the model in it and the model shows us the overall essence and the brand of how the clothes are supposed to be worn. It's not just the, the work that we admire. It's, it's the ways that these people do things. When we cover the songs, we sing with the same voice inflections as the people that do them. We're hardwired to imitate. So Paul opens up this verse in Ephesians 5, and he has a very lofty statement for us. He, 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 he expects of us, he asks of us, and he challenges us to be imitators of God. Not just to be admirers of God, but to be imitators of God. Not just to see God and, and have awe for God, but to actually see an invitation to become like God we're invited to do, he says. I want you to be imitators of God. And you scratch your head and you say, you mean, you mean the, you're talking about the Himalayan maker, rain maker. You're talking about the milky, like hung the stars in the sky, milky way. You're talking about the one who carved out the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. You're talking about that God, the God that made the streams in the Mississippi River flow through this, you're talking about the God who made atoms and the one who made solar systems? You want me to be like him? And so Ephesians is less a book, really, 
about the greatness of man to become like God, but that statement, the imitation of God statement in Ephesians 5 is less about putting on display the greatness of man. It's more about putting on display the greatness of the Holy Spirit that we've inherited, that we can not only go from death to life, but from life to abundant life to imitate the actual Jesus. Jesus was, was made man. He walked among us so that we didn't just have something to admire or to uh, or applaud or to, or to give glory to, but something to imitate and to follow, something to emulate something to follow in his footsteps. And so he says, I want you to be an imitator of God. I want you to be like him. The way you watch Mike, I want you to watch me. And I want you to be the way that Jesus was. I want you to look at, I want you to look at the way that Jesus led from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and, and, and move away from the propensity of looking at Jesus as Somebody that you're glad that he's like that, but that's nothing like me. Like, wow, I can't believe what a great leader Jesus was. I'm glad that I don't have to be a great leader like Jesus is. But this is the, 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 the main point that I want to look at on the screen today is that actually encounters with God, the wow moments of God are not just about saying wow. The wow moments of God are also invitations of how to live life. Every encounter with Jesus is actually an invitation to, to imitate, not just to stand on the sidelines and to, and to remark and to had admiration for, but to imitate. There were hundreds of people on the shore of Galilee that never made it to the boat. The 12 made it into the boat. They went out to sea. Jesus walked out on the waves, and of the 12 people, only one of them walked out on the boat. Peter saw Jesus walking on the waves, not as a moment for admiration, but a moment for invitation, a moment for imitation. Not to just see Jesus, but to be like Jesus, to emulate, to imitate. This has been the invitation. So every encounter, every time we see Jesus in the scripture or in life, every time we see Jesus be merciful, it's not that, oh, I'm glad that God is good and he's merciful. It's an invitation. No, this is how you're going to copy me. This is how you're going to be like me. This is not just an, an opportunity for you to observe me. It's an opportunity to imitate me and to emulate me, to be like me. And then he says this in Ephesians 5, uh, verse the end of 1 and then the beginning of verse 2. As beloved children, it says, walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. One time I went to a John Mayer concert, and some, some girl in the front row said, I love you, John! And John was like interrupted, but in that cool swagger, Elvis Presley 2017 way, was like, hey, I love you too, baby. And that kind of stuff happens all the time. Like throughout the concert, there's people yelling stuff and he's yelling stuff too. And there's this desire of musicians and artists to want to try and create intimacy and connection within a large group or a large audience. And so they'll, they'll talk relationally and they'll talk kind of like we know one another because in a sense, a brand or a celebrity is trying to create a relationship with their fan base. That's the basis premise of how they're trying to build up their, their celebrity. But you go home from those kind of nights and you think about that statement like John Mayer saying to 20,000 people that he loves his fans and you realize the shallowness of that statement. I mean, there's no possible way that John Mayer can love 20,000 people at the same time. Certainly not the way that Jesus loves people, the way that he says he laid his life down for not only 20,000 people, but hundreds of thousands of people and millions of people and billions of people for all time. From, there's no, not been a person that he didn't die for of all eternity from beginning to end, from Alpha to Omega. Jesus laid down his life for his people because he so loved the world. And so the invitation to imitate is not just based in admiration, but it's also based in affection. The invitation is not just to copy me the way you would copy Jimi Hendrix on a guitar lick or Michael Jackson on a moonslide. You're copying the one you admire, but you're copying the one who loves you. Consider some of these statements that are on the screen.
There's a difference between being transformed by inspiration and being transformed by love. Consider some of these statements next. Imitation through admiration can feed ego, but imitation through affection can feed the soul. The basis of you following the Beatles, the basis of you trying to do your hair like Justin Bieber, the why, what, and how of that transaction is to be famous, to be liked, to be popular, to be, to be known. So the core of it, although it, it looks pretty on the outside, the core of it is empty on the inside. It doesn't produce love. It doesn't produce sacrifice. It doesn't produce compassion. And so even from the onset, the very essence of trying to copy somebody from afar rather than imitating somebody that's close to you is based on comparison. It's based on building the ego without building the soul. It's based on trying to be something that I'm not so that I can accept somebody who I can't accept who I am. Imitation through admiration occurs through comparison, but imagination, uh, imitation through affection occurs through intimacy. The very ongoing practice of imitating somebody that you don't know that doesn't know you. Reading a literary mentor and just ascribing to their thoughts is a cold transaction at best. It doesn't have a I see you in it. It doesn't have a I believe in you in it. And therefore, it doesn't actually engage the true nature of our impulse to imitate. Our impulse to imitate was always first and foremost supposed to be surrendered to God. And when it gets surrendered to something else, it loses some of what it's meant to be. The last thought I have for you is that imitation through admiration can only lead to imitation. I can only get as good as Michael, jo- Michael Jackson at moonwalking. I can only get as good as Michael Jordan at the fadeaway jump shot. Because the whole premise is making him the standard. It's making that person the icon, the idol, as the thing that I'm trying to be. But the one that, that comes down and loves you as a child, that says in the scriptures, the one that knows your name, the one that sees you, is not asking you just to imitate, but to innovate, to be a new creation, to do something never been done before, to sing a song that's never been sung before. You know, the, the, the cover band will always be singing like Dave Matthews' band because that's the standard. But Jesus, as the standard, diversifies your possibilities. He widens the horizons instead of closing them. He allows you to innovate and not just imitate. So this one time, um, I went to this youth camp, and there's this big preacher guy. There was like, uh, I don't know, 4,000 kids that are in this auditorium, and I was like, man, this is like the coolest, best speaker guy ever. And so afterwards, there was some prayer time or something like that, and I ended up being next to him, and I decided, I think I was about 21 years old, that I was going to go up to him and just ask him a few questions about you know, preaching and teaching. And I was like, what do you think about this, and what do you think about this, and what do you think about this? And it struck me, he didn't, he didn't continue the conversation. He actually abruptly stopped me and he told me, actually, what are you doing tomorrow? Why don't we go to Jimmy John's for lunch? So this preacher guy, you know, during the water balloon fight or whatever they did in the middle of the quad there for the camp, invited me to lunch before he went to go and speak. And he took me to lunch and, and, and I kind of came with my little notebook to ask him a bunch of questions and uh, wanted to get his thoughts on transitions and illustrations and axioms or whatever it is, how to read the scriptures and those things. And, and, and he said, you know what, we'll talk about that in a second. I just, I want to get to know who you are. And so we spent most of the time, the lion's share of the time, just asking questions, sharing story, creating connection, creating value listening, talking, getting to know me. And by the end of the talk, I'll remember this forever more than any of the technical things he said about transitions or about body language or whatever it is that he was talking about in terms of public speaking. He leaned over the table. I'll never forget it. I was 21 years old. And he said these words to me that a John Mayer or Michael Jordan or Michael Jackson could never have said. He said, I want you to know that I've been watching you. 
I want you to know that, you know, we've been spending time with all these kids and, and, you know, you're kind of a new youth pastor and you've been caring for your kids. And he says, I want you to know, I see the way that you love your kids. And I also want you to know this, and I want you to hear me. He said, you have everything it takes to be the pastor that you want to be. I want you to know I see you, and I see what it means to be a pastor, and I know what it means to be a preacher, and I want you to know that you have everything it takes, just as you are, to be the one, the, 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 the person or the, the pastor you're trying to grow into. And in a nutshell, it's almost like I hear us saying from all the way from Ephesians 1 into Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 is saying, like, you're, you're, you're called to imitate, not Michael Jordan or Michael Jackson, you're called to imitate Jesus himself. The first place, the first place you put your impulse to imitate shouldn't be on an icon. It should be on, on, the, on the Son of God, the living God, Jesus. And everything from Ephesians 1 through Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5, all of those, those chapters, they're, they're inheritance for a purpose. They're all, they're all gifts that are given you so you can give them away. And they're, they're, they're all things that are leading into this identity where you're going to be able to have, to be empowered to imitate God. The one who made the Milky Way the one who split the sea, the one who, who, who sat with the prostitute, the one who preached on the Sermon on the Mount. Your impulse to imitate belongs to him first. And you are called and you have everything it takes in the Holy Spirit to be like him. It should shake you to think that you are called to imitate God. If you're not shaken by the idea of imitating God, you're not seeing God the right way. But the invitation, the invitation is this, is not, is not to see that as a paralyzing thing, but as an empowering thing to see that, that the one who called me to, to follow him and imitate him empowered me with the Holy Spirit that I have what it takes to follow in his footsteps. That just as I am and just as I'm created, I'm called that I, that I can be like the one I admire so much. And he's not from afar. I'm not a screaming fan in the back of an auditorium. He's the one that takes me to lunch. He's the one that knows me. He's the one that's close. He's the one who calls me a child. He's the one that says, you're going to be holy as I'm holy. He's the one that says, you look like me. You're an image bearer. He's the one that says, I've made you. I've knit you together. And I know you deeply. And I know you have what it takes to imitate me. So there's just three things that I wanted to look at that I think that we can find ourselves doing when we follow close behind Jesus. There's a series I want to do next year called Covered in Dust. Throughout the book of Matthew, I see this invitation, like there's a rabbinical statement that they would say about those that would follow rabbis, that you would follow him so closely that you would literally be covered in his dust. What would happen if we followed him for three years that closely that every, every particle of dust that came up from his sandals would fall on us because we're that close to him? These are the sorts of things that that we find ourselves empowered by the Holy Spirit to become. The first one is thankfulness. Verse 3, it says, But among you there may not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. There's two options you could do with this passage. You could either list out the six things you can't do or list out the one thing that you could do. And I love the kingdom of God that he only takes one word to combat six other evil words. Essentially what he's saying is that there's never been a, a child abuser. There's never been 
a person that makes fun of special needs people. There's never been a racist joke. There's never been someone that cheats on their spouse. There's never been somebody that coveted that didn't first decide not to be thankful in their life. Because thankfulness is the place where I spend more time looking at what God is doing and less time at what he's not. And it's spending more focus on understanding what he's given me and less of, wasting less of my energy, my resources, and my time thinking about what he hasn't given to me and given to somebody else. So he does in one word, the Holy Spirit can, what the enemy tries to fire at seven words. A couple thoughts on thankfulness as we look at this word. First, thankfulness is the spiritual acknowledgement that life is a gift and not a competition to be won. I mean, what would, what would be different if I put the old rule book away and took on his rule book? The way it's measured, the way the game's called, the way the refs make the calls in the, in the kingdom of heaven, they're not judging on competition. It's not a zero-sum game. It's not that if I have one piece of the pie, you can't have that piece of the pie. There is a surplus in heaven. Thankfulness demands that everything that I have is a gift. I didn't earn any of it, and so I'm free to enjoy it rather than protect it and defend it. Because if God gave it to me, it won't be taken away. Number two, thankfulness allows us to celebrate what we have without stumbling over what we don't. I remember at Thanksgiving a couple years back, it was the first Thanksgiving that we had after Kyra's father had passed away. Kyra's father passed away in August. His birthday was in October, so we went through that process. And the very next Thanksgiving, I remember on that day, Kyra's mom got us all together, we're all dressed up in our Thanksgiving clothes, and she drove us over to the man's house that performed CPR to save, to attempt to save Kyra's father's life. And there was tears and there was laughter. We prayed for that man. We said, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for acting. Thank you for courage. Thank you for, for not being a stranger. Thank you for being aware of your environment. Thank you for stopping and taking time. Thank you for being somebody who, who demonstrated the love of Jesus and we prayed for him and we blessed him. There's always something to be thankful for. There's always a lens to put on to recognize what you have. Life is too precious not to be paying attention to what God's already doing, which leads us into this last point. Thankfulness is the soil of vision. It's not only about looking backwards, but it's about looking forward. When we are focused on what God is not doing, we can't partner with what he is doing. I remember, you know, you guys know Bethel Church, like Bill Johnson out there in Weevilville and Reading. One of the things he said is like for, for, for like six months they met and were praying for miracles and like never saw a miracle for like whatever it was, six months. And finally, when one person was healed, I think it was like a lady with an ear thing. They prayed for her. She was healed. And he said, we got him. That's it. The power of recognizing what God is doing is that it, it, it gravitates us and points us towards what he's doing. And you notice that Jesus was never paying attention to what was going on around him. He was always paying attention to what the Father was doing. His lifestyle said the Father never takes a day off. And so he spent all of his time, the reason why he was always on the frontier of what the kingdom of heaven was doing is because he was always watching the kingdom. He was never watching the enemy. And every moment was dedicated to watching what is God doing. Listen, vision for your life, your next step, is not in what God's not doing yet. It's in what he already is doing. So go there. Don't go to the space and, 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 and fight and kick and scream and complain of, God, why don't you do this? And God, why don't you do that? God, why don't you do this? And thankfulness invites you to the place. No, God is doing something. Let me find it and go there. 
That's the equipping piece. That's what thankfulness does. It doesn't just change the emotion. For you were once in darkness. It continues on. Second point. But now you are light in the Lord. Live as children in your life. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper. Arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This picture is basically, the second point I want to make is is living in the light. The second thing that we imitate in Jesus, the thing that we would see in him if, if we were to see him truly with our eyes in 2018, we would see him continually living in the truth, in the unmitigated, unhidden, pure, unpoliticized, unfiltered truth. That's where he lived. He sat in that spot all the time. And if we followed him, if we were covered in his dust, we would imitate him in that way. It must have been incredibly peaceful. It must have been incredibly inviting to be around somebody that could never tell a lie, that always told the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, the fullness of the truth, who's always in agreement with exactly what was going on. He wasn't talking about the other thing to distract the matter. He was always talking about the thing. He was completely integral, one-hearted, pure-hearted, is what he said, is what the scriptures talk about in terms of purity of heart. It must have been relieving to never have to be eggshelling around a white lie. I'll never forget this other mentor of mine in a, in, a, in a summer camp one time. He said this. He said he was a dad at that time, and he was talking to us guys about having kids. He says, when you have kids, I want you to know this, that kids don't need to have dads who are always right. They need to have dads that are always real. And he began to talk about the power of apologizing to your kids. He said kids are voiceless, so they don't know when you sinned against them until they grow up. So if you don't tell them that you've sinned, they're going to think your sin is actually righteousness. And they're going to be incredibly confused. And he said, you are a sinner and you do sin. And one of the best things you can do is confess your sins to your kids. Tell them you got it wrong. Tell them why you got it wrong. Tell them how Jesus doesn't get it wrong. He said, light shines actually best in the dark. It shines best in the cracks of our life. In the crevices and the places of broken, brokenness, that's where light can actually break in and break through. We think we're doing people a service by hiding our sin. Because then we think that we can keep up a certain PR or keep our integrity intact or keep our witness intact, but it's actually quite the opposite. First of all, people probably know more about our sin than we think we know, because typically we're more blind to it than the people around us. But secondly, it's in our weakness that he's made strong. Our sin, our brokenness, our coming to the light, our living in unhiddenness is an opportunity to show who we are not and who Jesus is not only to our kids, but to our friends, to our church, to anyone that would see. So consider this just in terms of an equipping piece. And hiddenness means not necessarily that everyone needs to know everything, but someone does need to know everything. That you got people in your life that are driveway people, front porch people. In terms of boundaries, you have living room people, kitchen people. Wherever those people are, it's imperative that we live unhidden before them. Because a divided heart's not a pure heart, and a pure heart can't see God. And when we imitate God, what we are doing is we are continually living in the light. Lastly, he goes on to say, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. I want us to key in here on the prescription of wisdom, making the most of every opportunity, it says, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand that the Lord, what the Lord's will is. Wisdom is discerning the, wills, the will of the Lord. Do not get drunk on wine, it says, as a non-example, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs 
from the Spirit. Sing and make music from the heart of the Lord, always giving thanks to God for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I love that the, the non-example illustration that Paul gives for what wisdom is not is to be inebriated. It's to drink too much. It's to have a level of flippancy or kind of carelessness. The, the fruit of the Spirit is not seriousness, but it is self-control, a level of sobriety and, 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 and decision and intention. But then he goes on and he says that we're going to be, instead of being full of wine, we're going to be full of this other type of non-intoxicating essence, which is the Holy Spirit. And that's going to look like this, singing and making music from our heart to the Lord. And it makes me think, I wonder if we looked at this passage and really looked at if, if, if our dictionary for wisdom would change. Sometimes, you know, I think that the way that we look at wisdom, God would call fear. Because the way that we often look at wisdom is, is through the lens of calculation and through the lens of safety, risk assessment, cost-benefit analysis, and strategy, which has nothing to do with this passage. You, you, you see, you see the, the, the nature of the way he def, defines wisdom. It's to be singing songs. Like he's like, wisdom isn't the whiteboard, it's singing songs. Sometimes it says in the scriptures that the foolishness of God, uh, the foolishness of man is actually the wisdom of God. Like, we have a skewed version and interpretation of what wisdom is. He's saying wisdom is actually, you might read it this way, instead of giving up control or surrendering control to alcohol, it's surrendering control to the Holy Spirit. And so oftentimes I think that the way I would actually define what I think of as wisdom in terms of the non-spiritual sense, I think of wisdom as person control, but what Paul is clearly saying is that wisdom is spirit control. So here's our question for this. Would you describe your version of wisdom, like when you say, okay, God, I want to be wisdom. I want to have wisdom like Solomon had wisdom. Does it involve your heart? Does it involve the Holy Spirit? Does it involve the yielding of control to him? Or does it uh, involve the, um, the, the, the control and the, and the, and the keeping of, of, of understanding and wisdom and risk um, for myself? Would you describe wisdom as yielding control of the Holy Spirit? Or controlling it for yourself. So in conclusion, I think it's kind of cool to see it this way. Paul instructs us to this wonderfully too big, too good, too wide to be true invitation to imitate the one we were made by, to imitate the one that made us, to imitate the one that loves us and knows us. And he says how we do this is through the practice of thankfulness and unhiddenness and being filled with the Spirit. But you could look at it in this way, the way that Jesus told the woman at the well, that we imitate God by becoming a worshiper of Spirit and in truth. So I'll close with this. If, if, you, if you're in a time and a season when you're saying, I want to imitate God, but I can't see him, I can't imitate something I can't see, Timothy, we've been using this language of behold. You can be next to God and not really see him. Like he is everywhere, but we're becoming more aware of him and his likeness. You say, Oliver, like, I, I get it. Like, I don't want to be religious. I don't want to be just reading the rules and following the rules. I do want to have a relationship with his spirit. I want to be filled with the spirit. I want to be a thankful person. I want to be thankful, though, not just in truth, but in spirit as well. I want to have a living relationship, an imitation, not just an information relationship with Jesus. I want to know him and I want to be with him. 
I think the scripture empowers us to do this. The first thing that I see in this, in this scripture, and we've talked about already, I believe that one of the best ways we can, we can see God is just to begin to count in thankfulness the thing that he's, things that he's doing. Like this morning, even before we did worship, Timothy led us, uh, some of the volunteers and some of the family members here, in this practice of thankfulness. We do it to our kids and we make them. We make them do this at, at, at dinner table, and some of you guys do this too, but like you make your kids think of the thankful things, the things that they have, not the things that they don't have. I promise you, it's just crazy. It's something from heaven. But when you, when you practice the, 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 the practice and the ethos of thankfulness, it's amazing how it's easier to see Jesus. I wanna give you that practical next step, just for Monday, just for Tuesday, just for Wednesday. Begin your day by counting the fact that you can walk. Start with the fact that you have air in your, in your lungs. Start with the fact that you have a roof over your head. Start with the facts of the things that you have. Be thankful for the things you have. There's a, there's a heavenly encounter when we start to look for the things. We're, we see what we want to see. We, we see the things that we're on the market to go and see. And I think that when we start to see, I'll put it this way, when we start to look for the gifts of God, what we oftentimes find is the hand of God. We see the gift and then we can see the gift giver. And when we can see the hand of God, we can see the heart of God. And we can see the heart of God. We can actually see the face of God. So Monday morning, maybe just start with, with the gifts. Start with what he's doing. Start right there. Number two, there's a principle in scriptures that says that we don't see with the heart. We don't see with our eyes, we see with our heart. And so what Paul, I believe, is saying is that if we live in a place of duality and mixed message and disintegrity and dividedness within our heart, Matthew 5 says that the pure in heart will see God. But many other scriptures, including Matthew 5, say the opposite is that if you don't have a purity of heart, in other words, if you're different on the inside than the outside, it's impossible to see him. And so maybe your next step this week is to become unhidden with others. Not with everybody. I'm not telling you to go over vulnerable and share all your deepest, darkest secrets on Facebook, but find somebody and come unhidden. He says there's something essential about seeing God and becoming unhidden in that space. Lastly, be filled with the Spirit. And Timothy did a great job. You can go back and listen to inherit worship is one of the things we inherit. And he talked about the power of singing that, that lends itself towards the 18-inch 18 journey from our head to our heart. We oftentimes, we, we, we talk about and testify to this gap between our head and heart. I get it up here, but I can't get it down here. And, and one of the things that Timothy showed us in Scripture over and over and over again is that one of the vehicles to get from the head to the heart is through songs, through spiritual songs, through hymns through singing songs that you're not ready. Sometimes we worship because we want to, and sometimes we worship because we need to. Sometimes we, we want to worship and we start singing, and sometimes we just start singing until we want to sing. Either way, I want to invite you to sing. It's a biblical prescription. It's not a law or something that you're going to get in trouble for if you don't do it, but it's absolutely a vehicle to get into the beholding and the becoming and the imitating of God. Thanks for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please subscribe and leave us feedback on our iTunes channel. For more information about our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc. Thanks again for exalting Jesus with us.